Welcome back to the 98th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the process of running for president has become more of a way to gain clout and more of a business, the future change in the World Bank and their pivot towards more climate-based issues, and Porsche's e-fuel and how it's paving the road to a green future. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So has the presidency lost its shine, or maybe you want to use the word prestige? The last two presidents have hardly been presidential, or at least the most presidential that we could ask for. And there's also a massive field of candidates on both sides each time during the primaries. Are people just using it as a way to expand their brand? Is that why we see so many of them get on that debate stage and try to own each other very quickly? And is there something to gain by running for president but losing? Tell me what you think. Throw your comments down in the comments section. Maybe I'm crazy, but I'd love to hear what you all have to say. All right, let's jump to our first article. This one comes from National Review. Vivek Ramaswamy isn't really running for president. So, of course, if you don't know who Vivek Ramaswamy is, he is a tech startup. I believe he's a billionaire, but if not a billionaire, he is very rich. He stepped aside, wrote a different book, has been trying to talk about how there's something missing in American culture. We don't have our American identity anymore. And that's really what he's running on. And the National Review author really doesn't see it as a platform that's going to work. And he actually comes out swinging against Ramaswamy within the first two paragraphs or so. Quote, rhetorically, Ramaswamy cuts an odd figure. He's clearly highly intelligent, and yet his decision to download and internalize all of the cheapest 2021-era MAGA at the bar mode affiliations gives him the air of a swarmy optimistic automation. Like Mitt Romney, Ramaswamy speaks conservatism as a second language, and like Mitt Romney, he doesn't quite know it. In his mind, his Lawrence Oliver, in reality, he is the understudy who was called in a little too early in the rehearsal process. His senses scan and his timing computes, but keenly aware that the audience may know his part better than he does. He surveys the room nervously for signs of affirmation and adjusts on the fly when he sees a frown, the upshot of which is that Ramaswamy manages to say everything and nothing all at once, end quote. So, Break it down, he's basically saying Ramaswamy just panders to the audience that the conservatives already know his talking points for the most part. He's not saying anything creative. And that's exactly what that last line means. He's saying everything and nothing all at once. And while the author may believe this is true, I think it's really ironic that he's calling Ramaswamy out on this because this is what politicians have always done. Politicians use empty platitudes, make empty promises. They say the grand things and they can't accomplish them when they get in the office. But even on the trail, 
They find a way to skirt all the important questions and say a lot of blank words. The blah, 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 democracy, blah, 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 and end up having no definitive meaning, no calls to action in what they're saying. So this is not a new process whatsoever, and I find it very ironic that National Review is coming after him like this. And maybe it's because they don't actually agree with his politics, they believe he's a little too milk toast. Or maybe it's because there's something behind his words and this idea that we need to re-associate the word America, the, uh, the word American, with something that the national view doesn't necessarily think is the way to go about it. And let's be clear, I do agree that Ramaswamy, when listening, has been speaking about how, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily have an American identity anymore. And he doesn't necessarily give a solution. Sometimes he says it's faith. Sometimes he says that we just need to come back together, and he's going to give us that vision once he's in office. But he's not necessarily saying straight out that, hey, this is exactly how the vision should be. This is what my vision is exactly. He uses a few buzzwords. He says that we're trying to unite, that we need at the end of the day to get rid of some of these big bureaucracies that are too involved in the people's lives. But he hasn't necessarily, at the end of the day, given a comprehensive, all-in-one statement that sums everything up. It comes in lots of bursts and little pieces of it here and there. Now, when the author says that he's saying nothing and everything, I don't agree with that particularly. At the end of the day, he says that he wants to get rid of the FBI. He wants to get rid of the education uh, secretary and their position in the White House. So he has put forward solutions or at least some policies or some actions that he would take, but that doesn't necessarily mean that at the end of the day, he is fully summing everything up in one sentence, one statement. And that's where I agree with the author. But like I said, that's not what politicians do. They give little bits and pieces here. They don't necessarily always tell you everything that what of what their plan is. They kind of skirt around certain questions. They you know, answer, but they don't really answer. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't necessarily think the author's criticism of Ramaswamy on this front is as uh, warranted. But there are other parts of this. Now that we've gone past the just criticisms, criticisms of Ramaswamy, that I do think the author brings up some really important points that we need to look at further. So there's the press secretary argument. Quote, Ramaswamy isn't really running for president. He hasn't even really given up his job. He's transitioned to another one. He's not really thinking about what it means to be an American. He's building a ginormous mailing list. He's not really selling a vision that I have personally developed. He's running as Donald Trump's ubiquitous press secretary. And the author makes it clear that this is an as, not a to be. As a candidate, Ramaswamy is running to be press secretary of Donald Trump. That's not what he's doing. That's what the author's saying he's not doing. Rather, quote, he is running as Trump's press secretary, end quote. So what the author's trying to get at in these brief statements and doing it in a bit of a confusing way is saying that, no, he's not lining up for the job after the campaign. He is just quite literally campaigning for Donald Trump and not himself, which is an interesting, interesting way of looking at it. But let's get back to the quote. 
quote, we continue to live in a golden age of firsts, and by his own remarkable initiative, Vivek Ramaswamy seems to set to become the first contender for president in American history, whose approach to the race is to sell the virtues of the frontrunner better than the frontrunner can himself. Quote, I'm not running against President Trump, Ramaswamy said recently, nor does he expect to take him on. Quote, I don't particularly expect that Trump's going to take aim at me. That's not respectful, end quote. And Ramaswamy does talk about the fact that they're, they're friends, or at least they've had some conversations behind the scenes. They kind of get along, so they're not necessarily running against each other. And it's a very strong criticism of the author to say, hey, Ramaswamy is actually just trying to be a more refined, more intelligent, a more coherent speaker than Donald Trump on Donald Trump's issues. And at the end of the day, we'll see if that works. The author makes it sound like, oh, that's that's never going to work. You know, at the end of the day, he's not going to get the votes. He's actually supporting Trump. He's helping him, you know, take the lead in the primary. And that's a very interesting point of view, and it may not be wrong. But I think that the American people love Donald Trump's message, but not how he delivers said message. They love the things that he did in office, or sorry, I should refine all of that. The people that like Donald Trump, there, we got the air quotes out of the way because a lot of people don't like Donald Trump, and for good reason. But at the end of the day, they like what Trump did in office and some of the initiatives he put in place, some of the rule changes, deregulation, and Ramaswamy's coming in. He's proposing the same thing, but he's trying to do it in a more slick way with a little bit more of a soft touch and maybe that could win. The National Review is out here saying that it's not going to, it shouldn't, or at least that's the tone that the author implies. But at the end of the day, if Vivek is able to grab onto those MAGA voters who love the message, and he's able to distill it in a way that more independents can join the movement in the general election, then I don't see why they're calling him out so hard. Maybe it's because he's a genuine threat, or maybe because they really do believe that he's just a nothing burger, and he's not going to amount to anything, he's not really going to change anything, and he's going to keep the party stagnant, rather than maybe picking a candidate like Ron DeSantis, who is part of, at the end of the day, he has been in politics for a while, he's been a part of the system, he's effective, but he is still a step forward, rather than a step into the exact same swamp that the Republican Party is in right now. We'll see. We'll see moving forward. Uh, but I think there's the one last part of the article that I really want to highlight that really sums up everything here. And even if you don't necessarily believe all of the author's arguments, it does shine a light on what the presidential race has become. I've, I kind of call it the meat and potatoes of this article. Quote, for the better part of two decades, the incentive structures underneath our national politics has been hopelessly upside down. And nowhere has it been more acute than in the realm of presidential primaries. There is, it now seems, no obvious downside to running for president in losing, when losing is as seductive as it is. Given the size of the market and the breadth of coverage, even our no-hopers are guaranteed that their mere participation to gain bigger contracts on radio, larger advances on their books, higher speaking fees on the road, and a great deal more besides. 
it was inevitable that at some point a talented entrepreneur, which is funny, would come along and truly industrialize the process. And so it has come to pass, Ramaswamy 2024, by the book, the ETF, and the imminent show on Fox Business weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, end quote. And that is the meat and potatoes. At the end of the day, the presidency, or running for the presidency, especially in these primaries, like I mentioned at the top and asked in the daily debate, is it a way to get your name out there? Maybe you're like Pete Buttigieg or Cory Booker. They, you know, they're known in their states a little bit. They have a little bit of a reputation. Maybe they're on Twitter spewing some things back and forth, and people follow them, people like them. But that doesn't mean the national audience really is aware of them. So you run for president, and then, oh, well, you get a Senate seat. You get appointed to an important position in the cabinet in order to really entice the voters of the other person to vote for the new candidate who has come out of the primary strong and going into the general election. And, you know, this has always been a part of politics, to be clear. Uh, They would always, at the end of the day, award positions to their friends and the people that had helped them get through the campaign. We've seen this for a long time. And unfortunately, I can't remember the very specific word that Jefferson used to describe it and call it amoral. But it has been part of the political process for a very long time. So at the end of the day, if you go into a primary, you make a little deal with the front runner. So then you endorse them. And then they're going to be like, oh, okay, I I remember Pete. He dropped out. He helped me out. He really got me those those Midwest voters. So I'm going to give him a semi-important position where he could mess some things up. And possibly hurt his career, but also maybe maybe he could catapult it if he plays his cards just right. So yes, I do agree that these primary processes, they're very much ways for people to get their name out there. For them to get a primetime spot on one of the new shows, to basically get larger speaking free fees for a few months while they're going around the country spreading their message. Or in how the author would put it in this case, not spreading a message at all. But We need to change this up. At the end of the day, the presidency, if we're treating it like a business or a way to boost everybody's reputation that gets involved in the primaries, then we're just going to get people who are not qualified, who don't want to take it seriously, and then they take away and eat away at the people who are actually there trying to bring forward good policies into the office of the president and trying to affect change, and they eat up airtime, and they don't give enough time to the people that we should be watching who are serious, who we need to actually criticize and make sure that their policies are sound before they get into the White House. So, you know, that's just my little rant on it, and that's the one point of this author that I, with this author, that I really, really agree with. At the end of the day, it's become a clout-chasing game rather than a serious endeavor, or at least that's what it feels like from the outside. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from the New York Times. The World Bank is getting a new chief. Will he pivot towards climate action? End quote. And don't you just love the framing right off the top? Not what his, Will his initiatives be? It's no. Will he pivot to climate action? It's basically, if he's reading it, saying, hey, We think you should. The people here at the New York Times think you should. And there's going to be lots of pressure. And let's be clear, they're not the only ones. There has been pressure from a lot of different prime ministers, 
and Janet Yellen to have more sustainable projects. So it's not just the New York Times, but I think it's always interesting when the article starts that way and it's not an op-ed or sorry, it's not an opinion article. It's a, hey, we're reporting on what's happening and you know, the real issue is, is he going to do A? Is he going to do B? All right, quote, world leaders led by Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron of France and Mia Malti of Barbados, along with a constellation of academics and development experts, want the bank to do more to help poor countries grappling with climate change. The bank has set out its own vision for transformation in response to calls for action from the United States and others. Major shareholders have approved some initial reforms, including an agreement to let the bank lend more money and attract more private investment. At the center of the discussion will lie Ajay Banga, who is widely accepted to be confirmed as president of the bank in the coming weeks. End quote. So you can see there's mounting pressure from a lot of the important shareholders in the international community that, hey, you need to focus on these poor countries, give them sustainable infrastructure, and make sure that when they're investing their money, it's in a green way. And, of course, you know, the World Bank is going to have to reform in order to really put into practice some of these things that these leaders are calling for. So the reason that a lot of people are actually happy, whether or not Banga goes forward with some of these green initiatives, is they see the bank as slow, old, kind of bureaucratic, and they believe that Banga can really slim it down like he did at MasterCard when he reoriented the company and turned it into, a, I believe they said it was a Fortune 20 company by the time he was done with it. I don't necessarily remember if that was from this article, but needless to say, he really turned around the company and made it more viable and very competitive, and as some people in the business world would use this little buzzword, very agile. Quote, Critics of the bank complain that addition, in addition to being insufficiently focused on climate change, it is woefully slow to respond to major crises and lacks ambition and creativity. Mr. Bonga said he intends to bring a new sense of urgency to the bank's core mission of alleviating global poverty while also taking on some of the biggest crises in the world today. Quote, inequality is intertwined completely with challenges like climate change, changes like fragility of the world with refugees, and like being caused by conflict with challenges like the pandemic, with challenges like Russia and Ukraine, with what that does to food and fertilizer, he said in an interview. Quote, I don't think you can segregate these into buckets and hope that you can deal with one without dealing with the other, end quote. And, you know, that statement is very optimistic. Hey, yeah, no, we can't really just deal with one. We have to deal with all of them. But I don't know necessarily how he's going to put it into practice because then it's going to have to be an overarching program that deals with all of them at once. And let's be clear, it doesn't mean that, hey, you can't focus on one of those and it may alleviate something somewhere else. But I feel like he's setting the bar very high, that we have to deal with all these things at the exact same time because they're all interrelated. And of course, that's, that's not necessarily wrong. A lot of these do affect one another. But does that mean that you can't tackle one in an individual way and it may alleviate something else rather than trying to take an all-out approach 
that is so grand that it's going to be hard to fully implement some of the policy changes that they're going to want to do? I don't think so. I think he's being overly nice with these comments, and he's trying to appeal to everybody about all these crises. You know, at the end of the day, they're really important. We're going to focus on all of them. And he's trying to satisfy everybody. And I don't necessarily know if it's going to, because some people are going to read that and say, no, what do you mean? The pandemic is over. It's not as important. No, Russia and Ukraine is way more important than these other issues. Some people are going to say, yeah, no, the pandemic's huge right now. We need to be worrying about the future epidemics or pandemics that we may have, because in the poorer countries, they don't have the health infrastructure in order to make sure that their population is safe, healthy, and cared for if another pandemic comes. People are going to value these issues differently. And rather than focusing in on one and trying to get congratulations for that, he's trying to get all of them in one bucket, like he says, using his own analogy. And he's trying to pour it out to the masses and say, look what we're doing for you. And some people are going to be satisfied and other people are not. So I think that at the end of the day, he needs to take a step back and really focus on one that speaks to his heart, make the company a little bit more agile, and then... In the future, it will be easier for them to respond to certain issues. Now, I do understand that the push for climate change is at the top of that list. But I think when we are lending out money through the World Bank to these smaller nations, these developing or third world as the old term would be, or global south as the new term would be, these countries are trying to have more efficient ways of creating energy. They were burning logs, you know, dung a while back. Then they started burning coal. Now they're burning oil and natural gas. And while renewables are important and we should be focusing on them as much as we can reasonably, at the end of the day, they're not as efficient in every single area. Certain ones may be more efficient in different areas, but overall, they are not as efficient as some of the methods that these countries are using right now. And in order to come out of the situation they're in, in order to alleviate the poverty for their population, they need access to cheap energy. So if these new pushes for environmental policy from the World Bank and sustainable policy come in and try to restrict the amount of investment that goes into these different energy projects and starts limiting the growth of these countries, that's where I think there's an issue. And that's why a lot of the leaders at the World Bank are, you know, they're saying, oh, we need to combat China. We need to stop China from using predatory loan programs in these other countries. But then you look at what China's doing, and it may be predatory. I'm not going to disagree with that at all. But they're not putting climate or sustainability restrictions. They're saying, you do with the money what you want. You will be entrapped, you know, debt-wise to us, and we may take a military base from you or a port from you here or there. But at the end of the day, you can do with the money what you wish. Rather than on the World Bank side, the Western system is saying, oh, no, 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 you you can kind of do what you want, but there's some strings here. It needs to be sustainable. And what option do you think the countries are going to take? Either be in debt to China and maybe have to give up something or be in debt to the West with strings saying that you can't use your money in certain ways. I just think that it's a little short-sighted on the part of world leaders and the World Bank to try to impose these environmental problems while these countries are still trying to emerge as strong economies. All right, that's enough rambling on that part of it. Let's get to the 
statement from Janet Yellen talking about countering China. Quote, a congressional hearing last month, in a congressional hearing last month, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, whose portfolio includes overseeing the United States investment in the World Bank, made clear that she hopes the bank will weaken China's efforts to exert influence in the developing wor- world, which the United States seems sees as predatory. She wants the World Bank to provide an alternative lending option that provides quality infrastructure investment that is responsible, end quote. And I, I like the way she phrased that. And let's be clear, responsible is a little bit of a tricky word, obviously. She's using not a weasel word, but a word that can be defined in different ways, of course, but quality infrastructure investment. Once again, it's a little bit of a phrase that's very general. It's meant to imply, oh, yeah, we want quality investment, not necessarily defining what quality investment is. But compared to these infrastructure projects that come in from China where they have to use Chinese companies, and very often they're not made the best. They're made very quickly, but they're not made with the best materials, with longevity in mind. They're made with the idea that, hey, oh, well, we're going to have a long-term partnership so we can come back in and fix certain things. And at the end of the day, if we are going to give to them, and we're not necessarily, I'm saying we shouldn't put on environmental restrictions, but we should put on heavy quality restrictions, ensuring that these projects that these countries pursue actually add value to the lives of their citizens and are going to last a long time so it can spur growth moving forward. Because that's what it's all about. These projects are about helping these countries grow, become a larger part of the neoliberal world order of free trade. And the more developed they are, the more access they have to capital, the more invention and innovation that happens there, the larger the markets become, the more they can offer the world. That's at least the theory of the neoliberal free trade world that we're going to live in. So we can't restrict them as we're doing this. We have to let them emerge. We have to let them rely on whatever they need to rely on energy-wise to get there. And then once they're joined in the developed economies of the world, then they can start worrying about you know, transferring some of that infrastructure to green energy because it's very unfair that we've reached the pinnacle. We've reached the point where we can start cutting our emissions or we feel that we can. And then we say to the rest of the world, no, no, you can't climb up that ladder. We can't let you use these extremely cheap and efficient fossil fuels in order to grow your economy like we did. No, 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 no. You have to come up with green energy, which is a little bit less efficient. And, you know, at the end of the day, it may hurt a little bit, but you're going to save the planet. It seems very unfair to get up to the top and then pull the ladder out from behind us. But that's just my opinion on it. All right, let's jump to our last article. This one comes from the brighter side of news. Porsche launches a clean e-fuel made from CO2, water, and wind energy. Quote, E-fuel is a synthetic fuel that is made from water, renewable energy, and carbon dioxide. It is designed to be used as a drop-in replacement for gasoline in Porsche's internal combustion engines. It is produced using a process called power-to-liquid, in which renewable electricity is used to convert water and carbon dioxide into a liquid fuel. One of the key benefits of Porsche's e-fuel is its low-carbon emissions. The fuel is producing, produced using renewable energy, which means that it does not generate any carbon emissions during the production process. 
When it is burned in an engine, it releases only the carbon dioxide that was used to make it, which means that it is significantly lower in its carbon footprint than gasoline. End quote. And this is this is a really great invention in my point from my point of view, or at least a very good step forward. They've been talking about hydrogen energy, obviously EVs have been taking off, but this this is a process, this is a product, though it will be very expensive, and I'll talk about the price point here in a second. At the end of the day, if you're trying to convert the masses to a green economy in the future, and you want people to be worried about their emissions, but they can't necessarily afford to get an EV, but they still want to do their part, then they can have this e-fuel, which runs, right now they're doing tests, but it seems to run just like gasoline. It can be poured from a pump, and then it can be used in your engine just like you use gas. This is a revolutionary technology, and because it is easy, it fits within the confines of knowledge that people have. Yes, I have my gas car. I go to the pump. I get gas. Now you get e-fuel. You spend a little bit more money on it until it's really widely produced and the infrastructure is in place to bring down costs. But this is a way that you can convert the masses. And if you're really, really vigorous in your efforts, you can actually have this be a whole new market segment in the United States. You could open up a lot of the desert areas in New Mexico, Arizona, or at least somewhere where it's windy, have new plants coming up trying to produce this e-fuel, have a domestic market for it so we're not as reliant on other countries for gasoline. There are lots of opportunities here that come with it politically as well as economically. And it all, at the end of the day, has a low carbon footprint. Maybe not as low as EVs themselves, but remember where those EVs are getting their power from, from a industry that is, you know, coal-powered, natural gas powered at this point until the renewables really take over. So this fuel, when made properly, is low emission and the footprint, meaning how much energy it takes to produce it that is not renewable, is very, very low. At least that's how they're making it sound. This could be a huge leap forward. And of course, I think it's very interesting that Porsche is doing this. They're opening up a new market segment. Maybe they're realizing their gasoline cars are going to go out the door. So they need to, one, make a product that complements their Porsches, their old gas cars, while also expanding into a new market so that they can have a sustainable, and when I say sustainable, not a environmentally sustainable, but a sustainable business opportunity moving forward. All right, that's enough rambling about those topics, and I know that Porsche one was very, very cheap. I will state that right now it currently costs about $45 a gallon to make, but that's projected to be less than $8 per gallon in 2026. And I know it was really short, like I said, but, you know, I gave you the low and dirty. That's all it's really about. And keep your eyes on the horizon with this one because it may be coming in a little bit quicker than people think. Right now they're using in their, their super racing cars, so we'll see if it makes it to the mass market by 2030. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a few locations that have it at the pump. All right, let's jump to our daily delight This one comes from Boing Boing. An adorable pig dislikes vacuum cleaner. You know, many people, they really despise the loud and annoying sound of vacuums, but people aren't the only ones. Quote, 
The pig can't stand the noises of the vacuum and unplugs it from the wall using his mouth every time the owner tries to plug it back in. End quote. And, you know, can you really blame this little guy? That vacuum sound, I normally throw in my AirPods and I'm just listening to a podcast or I'm listening to music because otherwise it is so loud that it is quite annoying in my opinion. Quote, if you need a reminder of just how intelligent pigs are, this little guy figured out how to stop his owner from vacuuming. There's no way I could get any more annoyed, but if this were my pet, I wouldn't because it's too cute for words, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and a link to the Twitter at Your Daily Flip, where you can go in and see the links that I post directly to the YouTube videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. With that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.